Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. My guest today is Marianne G., one of those rare recovering alcoholics who has successfully implemented the tools of the program to sustain a long and happy marriage to a fellow AA member she met early in her program. But it wasn't easy. Growing up in a constant state of fear, in a home with an alcoholic father and a mentally ill mother, Marianne sought relief from the family dysfunction by starting to drink at age 12. Though she found refuge in schoolwork and academic achievements, she continued to drink through high school, college, and a lofty corporate career well into her 20s. To her emerging alcoholism, she added impulsive spending and dangerous relationships in a futile effort to quell her growing fear and unhappiness. By early 1985, with her facade as a successful businesswoman wearing thin, Marianne finally hit bottom and joined AA. The rest, as they say, is history. But Marianne's inspirational story is one of working the program to first stay sober, then practice those same principles to build both a successful career and a happy marriage. Marianne's matter-of-fact approach to AA and its many gifts is one I admire greatly. I think you will, too. So, sit back and enjoy the next hour or so with my friend and AA sister, Marianne G. I'm Marianne, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Marianne. I'm really glad that you're able to be here today to do the AA Recovery Interviews. And what's interesting is I'm trying to get a variety of people, mm-hmm. not only people I know, but also people who I know but I don't know. I know their, I know their spouses or I know their parents or their kids. Uh, I maybe have met them in a Zoom meeting somewhere. Sure. Now, you're an individual who though you and I have probably only met in person a few times. Right. We've met each other online through Zoom over the last year or so. Absolutely. But more than that, you are the spouse of one of my best friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. And and so I know from him that you guys have been married a very long time. We have. And that you both have been sober a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of wanted to start out acknowledging that and how much I respect the fact that you've been married a long time and you've been sober a long time and you're still together and when so many other things happen in life that people just being able to stay married and stay sober is a major accomplishment. I just wanted to acknowledge that on the front end. Thank you so much, Howard. Yeah. Before we get into a little bit of background, let me ask you, first of all, what's your your sobriety date and number of years? Sobriety date is January 14th of 1985, 36 years. 36 years. Okay. So when you look back on your 36 years, and I know that your husband has a comparable amount of time. He has 38. 38 years. Okay. So the question I I wanted to ask, um, I don't get to ask it a whole lot of people who are married and and in the program together, Mm -hmm. is what is there about Alcoholics Anonymous that has made uh, your relationship or has enriched your relationship over the years? I think that for for me and I would I could venture to say for Barry as well mm-hmm. that both of us being sober has really kept us committed mm-hmm. to relationship mm-hmm. whereas before when I wasn't sober there was no commitment there wasn't sure. even any 
real clarity uh, around what I was doing. I felt like I was living very much in a fog. And I think that AA has allowed us both not only to work our own programs, Mm -hmm. but to bring our experiences into the relationship uh, so that we can talk to each other, we can share with each other, we can support each other. Yeah. You know, over time it has become, you know, two people mm-hmm. sort of coming together yeah. and walking walking through the challenges of life and it's yeah, made made a huge difference. I'll bet it has. And I know that you are good friends with another couple, uh Jim and Jane. Oh, you know, yes. I'm certainly mm-hmm. not going to use their uh their last names, but another married couple, both of whom have very long-term AA sobriety. Mm-hmm. When you look back on your sobriety and, and being married at the same time, did you work the program together or were you very independent from each other over the years? I would say that overall we were independent in that. Mm-hmm. My recovery was my responsibility. Sure. Barry's recovery is his responsibility. Yeah. And where there were things that overlapped uh-huh. uh, in any relationship, you're going to bring stuff, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stuff yeah. from the past or challenges from the past, behaviors from the past. Mm-hmm. For me, so much of it had to do with fear mm-hmm. and with really uh, no understanding at all about how to relate or trust or talk to another person. Mm -hmm. And yet in our early sober years, it just was really clear to me Mm -hmm. that that was something that was very much possible, and I had never experienced that before. Mm -hmm. So, So much of what that has meant is that There are times when we've had to come together to work through issues in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And then there are other times where, you know, ultimately the quality of my sobriety is my own. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And so by kind of walking parallel and intersecting paths, I think Mm -hmm. at the same time, that has really given us a very deep level of trust. And that has been probably one of the biggest gifts um, in my sobriety. That trust is is so hard to get in any relationship, but being able to know that by working a good program, you're building trust not only in yourself, but in the relationships that you have, that's such an important factor to staying sober and also to staying married. One of the things I noticed when when my wife was doing Al-Anon for the period of time that she did it was that... And it may be different with two people who are in AA versus one in Al-Anon and one in AA. But what I noticed was any time that I tried to presume that the answer to her problem might be found in an Al-Anon meeting Mm -hmm. and suggested to her, based on my own experience in AA, what she should be doing in Al-Anon, that didn't work out so great. Because after a while, I realized I really needed to let her have her own program exclusive of mine. And instead of going to her and saying, you know, maybe you ought to call your sponsor about this, or maybe you ought to work a fourth step about that. Mm -hmm. That that never really worked out very well. And I wondered whether you have ever run up against that in your relationship, where maybe you crossed over some lines, uh, boundaries, let's say, that have been set up between the two of you. 
I would say that um, not nearly as much now, but uh, certainly early in our relationship and early in our marriage, the need to control remained very strong in me, mm. more so than I think that it doesn't manifest it, it seems, as much with Barry. So mm-hmm. so much of that had to do with my own fear around relationships, mm-hmm. of struggling with trust, of not seeing things clearly. Mm-hmm. But over time, and doing a lot of work and seeking outside help, mm-hmm. I came to have a deeper understanding Mm-hmm. of why I maybe reacted in certain ways, yeah. why I tried to control situations that I had mm-hmm. no business controlling. Mm-hmm. And so through honest conversation over these many, many years, we have come to a place, I think, not only of deep trust, but when I uh, need to share something or he needs to share something, mm-hmm. it's so much easier. There's just this level of ability to listen and support one another. Right. So even yesterday, I was in a one of those places that where fear got triggered, you know, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, after losing my job, it's been a it's been really really hard to walk through mm-hmm. all of that, and I'm still grieving some of that. And uh, so when the, the the spinning thoughts in my head go, I can say to Barry, mm-hmm. "Listen, I need to kind of share this just so I can regain some perspective." Right. Yeah, yeah. And so he absolutely stopped what he was doing. We sat down, he listened to me, and he responded just with, you know, very well, you have a couple of choices about that. Mm-hmm. You're being too hard on yourself. Yeah. Or this isn't you. This is old stuff. Yeah. And I think that the ability to have that equal exchange. Mm-hmm. And trusting in that has strengthened our relationship yeah. because we are two individuals kind of walking the road together yeah. rather than one of us trying to direct how the other person ought or should go. It hasn't happened, you know, without work. Oh, of course, of course. And you know, on both our parts. But. Yeah, and there's always, there's always a lot of that. Uh, I like to look sometimes at the backstory to kind of get a perspective on where people are today. Oftentimes when I feel when I'm talking about when I got sober, I'm thinking about, wait, that was a really long time ago. And, you know, times have changed. Generations have passed. uh, But it's still important. But I want to go back a little further with you and Mm -hmm. ask you. Uh, what you remember about your early home life that might have contributed or put you on the path towards alcoholism and what what there might have been going on in the family that, that contributed to what happened later in your life? It's taken me, uh, again, a number of years to sort of um, evaluate my home life and not be uh, so judgmental about it mm-hmm, um, sure. because my father was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He grew up as a only child, mostly on the streets of Boston. Mm-hmm. His father was an alcoholic, and to talk to him, he had to hunt him down in bars. His uh, mother, of course, was the primary support for him, and so she worked. Uh-huh. And so, therefore, he was somewhat on his own. Uh, and he did have some uncles who 
who helped him, but he said, I was not going to school. I was truant a lot. So there was a lot of difficulty and pain and damage from in his life. My mother, on the other hand, grew up in the country. She had eight other siblings. Her parents were from uh, Poland and the Ukraine and had come over here. And they worked a farm. They didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother, I'm not, she never really talked that much about her childhood, but she left mm-hmm. the house when she was 18. Mm-hmm. What I've come to understand about her mm-hmm. is in spite of kind of the outer facade of this, you know, big, wonderful family, my mother walked away with her own mm-hmm wounds and her own damage. And I do think she suffered from mental illness. So you put an alcoholic father and an angry mother together, and it made for a rather explosive, threatening environment. Yeah, it's like, have a good marriage, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) See you later. Um, And so, you know, over time, my father's uh, drinking escalated. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, at one point not coming home till four or five in the morning because he'd been out drinking and, you know, he had affairs my mother was uh, very, very unpredictable in her moods. Mm-hmm. And so I was really frightened of her uh, as a mm-hmm. child because I never knew which mom was going to show up. So Now, was all this going on when you, were a, when you were a little girl or is this? This is all when I was a kid. Okay, so so where are you amongst any siblings in your family? I'm the middle kid. I have You're an the middle kid. I have an older brother who's about mm-hmm. a little over a year mm-hmm. uh, older than I, and I have right. a younger sister who also got sober. My brother did not. So the three of you were observing this uh-huh. with the same level of understanding and the same ability to take all of this in. Right. And so my my brother became really angry. He was kind of the scapegoat. Oh. My sister was sort of the uh, lost child, and I was the overachiever, if you will. Wow. What ended up happening is that I, I was very afraid most of the time. I had no guidance on mm-hmm. what I was supposed to do. The one thing mm-hmm. that brought me comfort and a measure of success as I was really good in school. Uh And so that I loved to read and I loved, you know, going to school and learning stuff. Hmm. So I became sort of absorbed in that, had lots of books on my bedside table. Mm -hmm. They had to force me to go outside sometimes, but I I did love the change of seasons. Uh But by the time I was 12, you know, uh, that's when I started drinking. There was always alcohol in the house. Mm-hmm. We started, uh, you know, it started with wine coolers, right? Strawberry yeah. Hill and ginger ale or whatever. Um, sips of beer from my father when we were even younger. But mm-hmm. I always say that the real uh, kind of continuous drinking began for me at the age of 12. Now, what were your, your experiences with those early stages of drinking because you wanted to drink? Well, one of the things is, is I didn't, I didn't have a sense of how to stop. 
So, you know, when my parents were uh, out of town, my father had a good job. We lived a very middle-class life. So on the outside, it all looked really good, right? We always had a nice house and Mm -hmm. two cars and, you know, all of that stuff. So his alcoholism never got in the way of uh, his career or his job? Not until I was in college. My goodness. Okay. So he was, he was, for all intents and purposes, a functional... A functional alcoholic. Right. He could, you know, when he was younger, he could stay out all night and get up and go to work the next day. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's not so unusual. Right. As he got... Right. And my mother was always like, I don't know how he does this um, because she would get sick. She drank too, but she would get sick if she drank too much. So you had these two people, you had your mother and you had your father to measure against your own first experiences with alcohol. What were you expecting when you first drank? What, what, going back to that 12-year-old mind, picking up a beer or a wine or whatever it was you were drinking, what did you expect? Were you trying to change your mood or check out? What- I don't think that I had any conscious expectation, you know, at that age. Mm -hmm. But I do know that because I lived in almost a perpetual state of fear and anxiety, Mm -hmm. that by drinking, it it kind of altered that or Mm. pushed it down a bit Mm -hmm. so that I would feel a little less anxious and a little more quote unquote, normal. I didn't know that it wasn't, you know, that it was not normal to be afraid and anxious. So what was the fear of? Was was there anything in particular that you feared that kind of drove that anxiety? Sure. I think there was, you know, by that time, I, um, my mother was very unpredictable in her behavior and it was very threatening. And Mm -hmm. when she was violent, you just never knew what was what was going to happen. You know, she wow. might come after you with a yardstick. She would berate you. She would, and you never knew when yeah. uh, she was going to have an explosion. They were not ever predictable. Were they alcohol incited or were they just uh, all the time irrespective of whether or not she was drinking? Yeah, it was irrespective of whether or not she was drinking. Hmm. So, and then, you know, there were other times when she would retreat into terrible silence, right, and not speak to anyone. And so I think by the time I was 12, Uh I was looking for some antidote to feeling that way all the time because there were no parents in the house who were available to really walk my brother, my sister, or myself through any of that. What was your dad's response to all of that? Was he a participant in that, or was he unavailable? Did you look to him for any kind of help along the way? or No, he was pretty much absent for for the most part. And, you know, there were times when uh, he would take us on drives on Sunday afternoons, and we would mm-hmm. say, what is the matter with mom? And he would just tell us, well, she's just ignorant. You know, he kind of put himself above her because he had managed to get a college degree and, you know, he really didn't pay much attention. So his answer was to 
say she's ignorant, we'll go out and have some ice cream and then we'll come back and sometimes by then the, the mood had passed. But this was repeated over and over and over and over again. That's a tough thing for kids to go through. Oh man, it was really hard when I when I look back on it. And you know, ultimately I came to go, well my God, I come from not only an alcoholic family and my family of origin, but my mother's father was an alcoholic, my father's father was an alcoholic. So it's it's a generational uh disease for sure. Yeah. I get it. When you started drinking at 12, were you drinking alone or, or did you seek out other people to drink with? What was the progression of your drinking from age 12 until, let's say, high school or college? So what happened for me was is that, you know, we were drinking at home initially. So my brother and sister and I were sort of mm-hmm. uh, in cahoots, if you will. So if we could... All three of you. All three of us, and all three of us uh, had problems with drinking along with drugs as we got older. Mm. Initially, it was kind of the three of us. My brother, being a little bit older, um, when my parents went out of town for some job-related thing for my father, I remember my brother uh, bringing all these people into our house that were friends of his who were a little older Mm-hmm. all kinds of beer. I mean, people were smoking pot, you know, all over the place. I ended up drinking, I don't know, 12 beers and poisoned myself, I think. I was mm. violently ill for several days after that. And that's when I learned to moderate a little. Like, you know, it's like I went way overboard. And so over time, it became something that we did with our peers. I see. Uh-huh. You know, and so we were hanging out together. It wasn't too hard for the people that we knew to get a hold of drugs or alcohol. Uh-huh. By the time I was in high school, uh, I would go into a 7-Eleven, and I was mm-hmm. totally and completely underage at the uh-huh. time. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't seem to matter. I would be the one to go in. I was tall. Uh, you know, and I was able to buy a uh, beer and wine and take it back to the the rest of the people waiting, you know, in the wings. They weren't as strict in those days, were they? They were not. And then at one point, they lowered the drinking age to 18, and it was party. Party, yeah. Uh, I would leave, uh, at the time, you could leave campus if you were a senior uh, during oh, lunchtime. Uh-huh. So we would pile into cars smoke pot, go over to this bar across the freeway called Gunny Shack, and we would gulp down as many beers as we could before going back for afternoon classes. Were you uh, a functional student from the standpoint of being able to drink and do the, the, the pot and the other drugs? I was. And get good grades? Yes. Honor roll, all, all of that. All of that. Did that influence how you felt about whether or not you had a problem? Was measuring it against how successful you were in school that someone that successful couldn't possibly be doing anything wrong? I didn't see it as doing anything wrong. I'm sure uh, as an adolescent that there was probably a level of human oh, yeah. of hubris, mm-hmm. right? Of uh, this whole notion of kind of uh, invincibility and being young and separating from my parents because I didn't mm-hmm. want to be around them mm-hmm. 
anymore. Uh, and when I went off to college, it was the same same thing. I also put myself in some very dangerous situations that might have turned out differently. Mm. You know, riding in cars with both men and young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd go to concerts or whatever in Louisiana, and this uh, guy was driving us back, and he's going 100 miles an hour on country roads. And we are high as kites on drugs and alcohol. And it occurred to me that, uh, oh my gosh, he might crash this car. And it was just by, you know, fortune that, you know, it didn't, it didn't turn out that way. But I behaved, you know, badly. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's just, it's just um, kind of the way it was. But I continue to be a daily drinker and a drug user. But I'll tell you, I studied. And I graduated magna cum laude. That's not all that different than my experience. I was in college, and from the time I started drinking, really started drinking and using mostly pot and hash and and smokables, I I performed well in school, and and I was able to do my schoolwork at home, uh, crack open a bunch of beer, smoke a bunch of dope, and sail away in the evening and then the next morning get up and take an exam or whatever and do pretty well. And it was something I was almost proud of because I was seeing people around me responding in terrible ways whenever sure. it was that they drank. And I just seemed to, it didn't seem to affect my schoolwork, uh, although I, I did, you know, get sick from time to time. But Me too. It was never, it, it never became a problem in and of itself in college. Is that what you found? Yeah, it it really didn't. And there were there were plenty of other people that I partied with who were around and maybe they were around for a semester or mm-hmm. they couldn't get up or make it to class even if the classes were in the afternoons, so they ended up not doing particularly well. Uh, I was made fun of, I remember, being in the dorms, and then eventually when I moved off campus, oh, she's studying again, you know? <laughs> like, it was How dare she? <laughs> some sort of a derogatory uh, kind of thing. And you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was necessarily, but there was something mm-hmm. in me that mm-hmm. that just knew yeah. that this was something I needed to do. It may have been somewhat compulsive. Really? on my part, but it was also a, a reward, I think. I rewarded myself in, in some kind of way by getting good grades, or I would also venture to say it gave me a sense of superiority. Yeah, I used to, I used to feel the same way. In fact, there was a period of time where I was smoking pot much more than drinking because I used to think that all of the people who were drinking, it just made them sloppy. And and I was so sharp when I smoked pot that, and I could drive and I could perform and do everything else. And But then I realized that I wasn't getting the full effect, and so I went back to mm-hmm. alcohol every time, I, every time I smoked pot and pot every time I had alcohol. When did, when did alcohol first start causing trouble for you? Did, did any of that occur in college, or was that after? I would say that it became more troublesome as things escalated after college. Uh, I had gotten a degree in business. I passed the CPA exam. Hmm. My first job was at a big eight accounting firm. But I was, Hmm. again, absolutely terrified. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I worked during the summers and 
you know, for when I, my, when my course load was less, I took on, you know, part-time jobs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But my first kind of real job out in the world was absolutely terrifying. I felt completely unprepared. But the environment there was such Mm -hmm. that there weren't a lot of women who worked at big eight firms in the in the 80s. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a, a new thing. And so I felt very out of place. And that's, I think, when the truth around self-esteem was really present. Mm-hmm. I'm just not good enough. I'm not like these people. I don't, I'm, there is just no way that I'm as smart you know, I mean, these were people who came from very elite yeah. schools from across the country. It's not that I didn't do okay, but I never felt comfortable. So that inferiority that we almost invariably feel whenever we're alcoholics and are also in a state of fear, sounds like that that occurred for you. And the fact that right. you were working for a big eight firm and were working with these other smart people it didn't make you part of their crowd. It actually kind of isolated you, huh? I would say that was true. Uh, I still went to happy hours and, you know, did things like that, but I never felt completely comfortable. Certainly, I uh, I still had friends, but ultimately, I ended up spending more and more time isolated and alone. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I had moved mm-hmm. out, you know, and had my own apartment, you know, no roommates for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Got lots of credit cards, about 14 of them, Mm -hmm. uh, charged up a storm, Mm -hmm. bought furniture and clothes. And, you know, I was living beyond my means. Mm -hmm. I even bought a very expensive car, (laughs) Uh, which I had no business buying. Right. But that's kind of the the things I think that I tried to use to fill what felt like a really big hole. And, And I didn't want anyone or couldn't bear the thought of anyone seeing that big hole. And even at the same time, none of those things filled that big hole. And I became angrier and angrier and more and more resentful. And it's not that I shouted or acted out in any way, but someone said to me once, and I can't remember if I might, I think I was probably very newly sober And someone said to me, you know, you absolutely ooze anger. I had no idea that that was the case. I knew I was unhappy, but I thought that I was covering it up pretty, pretty well. Right. And that's, you know, it's at times like those that only in looking back can I draw the connection between my dad's violent behavior and and his his way of acting and my mother's way of acting and and the ways that I was thinking and right. that, that's always right. a difficult thing to to know now mm-hmm. um, so all of the things that you were getting and buying and doing they were more to veil the way you were feeling as opposed to just self gratification right some of it could have been self gratification but i think it was more a role that i played i see you know this outer image of the successful businesswoman mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. 
who had the right car and an apartment and nice clothes. You know, like yeah. it was all about sort of this image of success, uh-huh. was, which really wasn't true at all. I was miserable. Did you take any pride in that outer face that you were showing everyone, the successful businesswoman, or were you able to ever let your hair down with anybody around how you were feeling at that time? Mm-mm. I drank and drugged it down. Drank and drugged I mean, it. I was, I, yeah, I drank daily. I would, you know, stop on my way home from work. And, you know, buy the wine or the this or the that. Weekends, it was mostly wine during the week and then the harder stuff, you know, like Crown Royal on uh-huh. the on the weekends, right? Yeah, but it wasn't getting in the way of your job as of that point? I was never fired, believe it or not. I was not promoted as quickly as others, but I did get wow. promotions. But I was never fired. Nobody ever huh. spoke to me about you know, any of that stuff. The other thing that was really strange when I think back about it, Howard, is uh, I had really good relationships with the clients that I served. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> they yeah. liked me, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I had the uh, kind of mm-hmm. interpersonal yeah. skills or, mm-hmm. or ability <laughs> of some sort. They never, they never saw you know, anything untoward, always were very supportive. Oh, I really like her. Is she coming back? You know, and I worked with small businesses, which was much easier for me mm-hmm. uh, than getting uh, caught up in some of the larger corporate corporate clients. They were, that was a little more intimidating. So your employer at that point, because all their clients were happy and had no problem with you whatsoever, your employer was just fine with that because as long as it's producing. Yeah. The years that I spent in sales, as long as I was producing, and I produced even though I was drinking and using drugs all the time, they never called me to task on anything. Nope. I was able to hold my job. Did you find that that enabled you? Would you, do you think you might have done something if they had confronted you or fired you along the way? You know, I don't know. And it would be hard for me to uh-huh. speculate. Maybe. Um, I was still fairly young when I ended up becoming sober. And I think by that time. I see. I was beginning to see that all, that things just weren't working. I was in debt up to my Mm -hmm. wazoo, relationships were not working out, especially Mm -hmm. with men. I felt horrible Mm -hmm. all the time, no matter how much I drank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fear was really, really overwhelming. And I was more and more isolated. Mm. I can't believe that I would drive as intoxicated as I often was. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, I, I had horrible yeah. <laughs> boyfriends <laughs> who were just, they were just awful, awful people. So your picker was intoxicated as well, right? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> right. And so by virtue of how young you, you are now, of course, and the fact you've got 36 years sober, I'm assuming it didn't go too much further beyond your 20s. Right. It did not. In fact, I I had a sense that something wasn't right. My sister called me one morning. She said, Uh oh, my God, I just spoke to dad and it's 7 a.m. and he's drunk. Uh And so we set out to save him, you see. And I opened up the phone book and found the Council on Alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so my sister and I met after work. We went and talked to some people over there, and 
And this very, very nice lady showed us the dynamics in our family. Who was the overachiever? Who was the scapegoat? Who was the, you know, the lost child? And we walked out of there absolutely stunned. And we looked at each other and said, now we know what's wrong with us. So that was the the beginning of a, a little period of controlled drinking, don't you know? Yeah, well, it sounds like it was a real wake-up. Totally a huge wake-up call, and that we didn't need to focus so much on my father. We needed to yeah. focus on us. On yourself. On ourselves. And that was huge for my sister and I, and she actually started going to AA <laughs> before I did. Yeah. And she said, oh, the meetings yeah. are great, yeah. and I was like, well, you know, I'm not doing that. Let's go do some therapy. <laughs> so I did join a therapy group, and that's when this I met this woman, Danielle, and we became friends. And she said, look, I'm going to AA. And if you're still drinking Mm -hmm. uh, while we're in therapy Mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to be drinking, you need to come to an AA meeting. And, you know, she convinced me to go to the Post Oak Club. And that's where I ended up. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying this show, I invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and search for Big Book Podcast. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. Or you can visit bigbookpodcast.com and listen there, and share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. And we're back. You know, I'd I'd like to just back up here. I I feel like we maybe there's a little chunk of the story that I was curious about, and that was how bad did it get, and how did you feel in the final days before you had that moment of clarity or the whatever it was that was pointed out to you that made you realize that you you might have a problem. How, How bad did things get for you? Well, you know, I wouldn't say, like, I wasn't unable to pay my bills, Mm -hmm. but I was living beyond my means, Mm -hmm. which essentially meant that more money was going out than was coming in. So, of course, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. meant Mm -hmm. that if I didn't have the cash, I was putting it on a credit card uh, of one sort or another. So I had a pretty massive amount mm-hmm. of debt, but I was never unable to uh, pay my bills. Mm-hmm. It was really more about isolation and having no kind mm-hmm. of healthy relationship with myself. I think I became very withdrawn, mm-hmm. very angry, 
not trusting yeah. anyone. You know, I wasn't one of those um, extroverted kind of party girls. I was much more of an introverted sort of a, a, a person. I didn't lose anything, but I think I came pretty close to sort of losing my mind. Did you have any realization along the way when all that was happening and you were isolating, you were drinking, you were using drugs, you were out there spending beyond your means? Was there ever a point before you got to AA, of course, was there ever a point where you said, I think I have a problem with this. I better stop or I better moderate. Did you try any of those along the way? I only tried mm. moderation because none of mm. that really ever occurred to me. I knew something was wrong. Like I could feel it. It was more of an inner mm -hmm. something, you know, like a mm -hmm. warning sign of, of danger, I think is the way that, that I would put it. Mm -hmm. But after our experience at the council, I decided to moderate my drinking because I wasn't ready to admit that that I was a I was the problem or I had a problem. How successful were you at moderating your drinking? Not. No. <laughs> 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 Not. It didn't work. How long did it take to convince you that it didn't work? I think it was several months because I'd say, well, I can just have a glass of wine, right, after work. And before I knew it, the bottle was gone. Right. Uh -huh. And I was hunting around for something else. Mm -hmm. I think it, what really turned it around was this woman, Danielle, who said, you know, you're not supposed to be drinking while you're in this group. And she started going to AA and she was, you know, just seemed happier and she was meeting all these people. And I thought, mm. okay, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to go and check wow. this out. It was really hard to walk through the door, really hard. I'll bet. You didn't step off a cliff necessarily, but things were going south pretty steadily for you. They absolutely were. Yeah, yeah. So Danielle had convinced you that you probably should stop during the, the group. Right. And that you should go to AA with her. What were your first meetings like when you when you went in? Well, Danielle met me in the parking mm -hmm. lot. I think I met once with her and walked yeah. in with her. And then after that, I was kind of on my okay. own. So I uh, sat in the back and smoked cigarettes uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tried really hard not to be seen. And then I would get up and shoot out of there as quickly as I could. Yeah. I had no ability at that time to even try to talk to anybody. Yeah. Um, I would still do things with Danielle from right. time to time. She really was a lovely person. Yeah. And we, we remained friends. I realized uh, on my own that I couldn't just show up, sit in the back, and leave and go home. Yeah, yeah. Um, because sitting there, I recognized in listening to other people that their stories were my own. Yeah. They were laughing, and they were committed, and there was, you know, people were going out after the mm -hmm. meetings for mm -hmm. coffee, you know, all of those sure. things. And I had nothing like that in my life. Did you feel when you were going to those meetings and, and sitting in the back, even though you were leaving right when the meeting ended, or, did you feel welcome? Or did, did uh, what, what aspects in your early days of the meetings were attractive and which were repulsive to you? 
Well, the things that were really attractive to me was listening to other people's stories. So I only went to speaker oh, meetings uh-huh. for a long time yeah. <laughs> because I didn't want to oh, get called okay. on, you know. And um, I was sort of one of those lost people mm-hmm. who really uh, put up a, a shield, if you will, and kind of remained invisible. Mm-hmm. I think that my body language made it very clear that I... I was not open to anyone uh, really approaching me. But I did really like listening, going to speaker meetings and listening to other people, both men and women. Hmm. And there was, I reached a point not too long after that where I realized that if this was going to work for me, and I, I, I didn't pick up a drink, mm-hmm. you know, uh, once I started all of that. Uh, but I realized that in order for this and for myself to get mm-hmm. better, I had to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I had to meet mm-hmm. people. And so I stayed after a meeting, sat down at a table mm-hmm. in the in that particular thing. There was like sort of a little table sure. area and you could get uh-huh. coffee at the uh-huh. bar and, you know, all that stuff. I sat by myself at a table Mm -hmm. (laughs) and people came up and sat down with me and, and began to talk to me. They handed me their business cards. They encouraged me. They said, you really need to get a sponsor. See that lady over there. She would make a really good sponsor. I've known her, you know, and so I started paying attention to her and listening to her and I uh, really wasn't able to ask her. She more or less volunteered. <laughs> yeah. How many months into your sobriety did this occur? I want to say that it was just a couple of months. Really? Okay. So it didn't take too long for you to come to the realization that you had to get to know people to really start to get the program. Yeah, I really, I, it really did not take very long. It it didn't take long for me to understand, oh, this really is true. I'm an alcoholic, just like everyone else here. And if they can learn to live life sober and be happy, maybe there's a chance for me. Do you remember the very first time that you said, my name is Marianne and I'm an alcoholic? I think that I probably was sitting next to my sponsor and I don't even think before I did that, mm-hmm. that I ever raised my mm. hand. You know, are there any newcomers? I don't think I raised mm. my hand and said, and said any mm. of that. I think it was having an ally sitting next mm. to me that I was finally able to admit it to a group. So you had the courage at that point, and this was your sponsor sitting next to you, you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that she volunteered herself to you as a sponsor. What was that experience Mm -hmm. like? Oh, she was just phenomenal. Uh, And initially she said temporary sponsor. Well, she ended up being my sponsor for a number of years. And she, um, I recall some kind of conversation like, well, what do I do? Like the thought of calling her was terrifying. And I think I even, I think I even told her that she said, okay, here's how we'll start. Uh-huh. You call me three times a week. Huh. I don't care if you can't say anything to me on the phone. I don't mind if you cry the whole uh-huh. time. But I want you to call me three times wow. a week. 
without fail. That's great. And so, but that was like, oh, okay, so give me something to do <laughs> and tell me how many times to do it. Yeah, give, give me something to talk about when I call you. I always felt w- with my sponsor, I always felt like I had to have an agenda to call him. You know, I'd call him up and I, I would start out saying, well, Mike, the reason I'm calling is because of da-da-da-da-da-da-da and this and that and the other thing. And finally he caught me, he caught me on doing that. And he said, listen, Howard, a complete conversation in AA over the phone with your sponsor is, hi, just wanted to check in for today. Um, I've read whatever page you told me to read in the big book. Goodbye. That that's a complete conversation. That's checking in. And that took the curse completely off the call for me. Did she make, give you assignments? Or? No, she didn't start out giving assignments. It was more like I would talk to her about what was going on with me, whether it was something at work or something else. Uh-huh. She uh, invited me to go with her to women's meetings, and I went for a number of years to a Saturday meeting, mm-hmm. women's mm-hmm. meeting, mm-hmm. Um, and we would all go out to lunch afterwards. Mm. I would meet her at a Friday night meeting and we'd all go out for coffee afterwards. So that kind of, or dinner or whatever, and that began kind of a, a socialization kind of a, a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how long uh, it took exactly, but most of my things were like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. right? Yeah. And she would say, okay, meet me here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or I- I'm going to come and get you. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to, you know, whatever it was, yeah. uh, because I was in a pretty awful state a good portion of the time. Mm-hmm. She told me it was okay to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I started spending a lot of time at her house with her other sponsees. And, you know, we would just hang out together and wow. and talk and laugh. And so I slowly began to break my isolation and began to have uh a connection with other people. I also worked the steps with her. Now, when was all this going on uh, when you were getting together with her at her house? And at what point did she start you on the steps? I would say it was within the first six months. Really? Good. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was within the first six months. She was just kind of one of those people that, I don't know, she had a confidence about yeah. her yeah. and a clarity about her. And she was exactly what I needed at the time. It's it's a, always amazing to me to think back on that and how how important she was in those uh, early months and early years because we stayed connected for for a number of years. Uh, I remember going to her house to do my fifth step mm-hmm. and I was shaking. <laughs> Never had I revealed anything right about myself or my my behaviors um to anyone and i'm telling you she was one of the the kindest uh most reassuring people and i took five hours i think um sitting in her in her den uh Hmm. while i'm i'm reading all of all of my all of my stuff uh, and it made a huge difference. So did you float out of there, or, or what was it like after you got done with that five hours? It was like a relief, mm-hmm. and it was like um, an awareness that my fears were unfounded, right. mm-hmm. that this was a person that I could, in fact, trust yeah. Yeah. to listen to me, not judge me, who shared very similar experiences, who was a little bit older than I and wiser than I, 
Uh, and that, that really made a huge difference and uh, absolutely stopped the isolation. That's you know, she had me doing stuff mm-hmm. all the time, especially on the weekends. Doing your eighth and ninth steps, did she, she walk through that whole process with you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We did all of it. And when did she have you starting to, to uh, when did she start assigning you to go out and get some sponsees? She never really assigned that to me. She, she was more show up to meetings, start sharing in meetings, and then be open to what happens, right? Uh, And so there was, I don't know that I could have been pushed into that. Right. Being an introvert and kind of a shy person, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have worked for me. Mm -hmm. But she was, um, more like just be open, Marianne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just keep an open mind and an open heart and share your experiences and just just kind of go with it. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember when I got a first sponsee, but I did make a lot of women friends. Yeah, I'll bet you did. And they were hugely supportive. And they, you know, included people from a variety of different backgrounds. And we all hung out together and smoked cigarettes, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and went for ice cream, and but we didn't, you know, we didn't drink. Those were the good old days. You know, over the years, I've found that going to a certain number of men's meetings every week has been really big and important in my sobriety. Not that any of the topics are that much different than a mixed meeting. It's just that the energy is different and so forth. Right. What's your take on women's meetings in, in your own sobriety? They were they were absolutely instrumental, especially early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mixed meetings and being newly sober um, could be a recipe really? for disaster because you know there was often the sort of gamesmanship of male female you know dysfunctional courtship that was uh, often happening at that time, and um, I stayed away from that. And that was why Lynette was like, you need to go to women's meetings and we're going to go together. So I went to several of them and she would also warn me off kind of the predator men Yeah, (laughs) because there were some just as if they're just like there were predator women, you know, who had uh, other agendas, you know, whether it was to find a rich husband or, you know, whatever the the motivation mm-hmm. was, but she was, she protected me from all that and kind of taught me, you know, now this is a, this is a nice person. Oh, yeah. It's okay to talk to so-and-so. Speaking of nice persons, so you're sober for how long before you, before you meet uh, the man who is now your husband? Actually, it's really, really funny. I met Barry when I was six months sober at my first Fourth of July sober party. Wow. And because Lynette, my sponsor, had a very nice house mm-hmm. in Oak Forest, and she had a room available. And she and Barry were friends. And she invited him to share hmm. her house it was a purely yeah. platonic mm-hmm. kind of relationship, and she felt very comfortable with him. And so she had a 4th of July party in 1985, and I uh, was so terrified I almost didn't go. In fact, I parked on the street, got out of the car, stood in the street, and thought, I can't even hmm. walk up to the door. Because there, were, there was lots uh-huh. of people, right? And I am not 
so much of a large party kind of person. Mm -hmm. But this other woman who was also newly sober, she uh, stepped out of her car and and it was mm-hmm. her name was Lisa and she said hi Mary <laughs> you yeah. know in that kind of a yeah. Texas twang right so we walked in together mm-hmm. and uh, I was sitting on a couch in her den and we were all about to watch a movie and Barry was mm-hmm. sitting next to me um, and so we we didn't really say much yeah. more than you know hi how you doing but I started seeing him. At meetings, he would ask me to lead a meeting. Mm-hmm. He, you know, hung out with some of the same people mm-hmm. that I hung out with. He felt very mm-hmm. comfortable to me, yeah. not dangerous in, in mm-hmm. any way. We didn't start dating till several years after that. So you didn't violate the, uh, the unspoken rule of not getting into a relationship in your first year? We did not violate that. And and he was already uh, a couple of years sober. Now, that's not to say that I had totally uh, mm-hmm. good behavior. I was still right. pretty nutty and did things that I shouldn't have done um, with men who were not yeah. in the program yeah. and, you know, had, had affairs and things like that. And even, even yeah. as a sober person, it was really bad. So if we look forward from the early days, let's say through the next number of years, what were some of the major uh, milestones in your sobriety, let's say within the first 10 or 20 years? I know it's a big chunk of time, but what things kind of stick out in your mind as pivotal or seminal events that your program came to the rescue? Can you think of any times during that period when those things might have occurred? One of the things that was really pivotal was getting married. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that was huge. And I was about four years sober. Barry was about six years sober. Mm-hmm. We had gone to counseling. Mm-hmm. We had been dating for a while. Mm-hmm. My mother liked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolute necessity. Yeah. Uh, which was, yeah, which was way oh, more yeah. than I could say for any of the other boyfriends, right? Um, uh-huh. And there was just a a sense of uh, something really significant really? Uh, happening mm-hmm. at that particular mm-hmm. point. I also think that uh, I ended up, after 10 years of being in accounting, uh, sobriety gave me the courage to make a career change. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad I did. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was particularly cut out for that world. And I went back to school and got a post-baccalaureate teaching mm-hmm. certification and began working with kids in the Fourth Ward and uh, in Acres Homes. Uh, I had uh, definitely had a talent huh. for teaching kids um, and didn't realize that that was huh. even there. So I really uh, value that which is creative, whether it's art or writing or uh, figuring out ways to work with children, um, especially those who are most in need. Wow, that's marvelous. You were available to that during your sobriety at, you said, about 10 years or so? Yes. I would say within the first first five years because I switched jobs around 1989, and then started my new teaching career in 93. So probably within 10 years, yeah, around 10 10 to 12 years. I found something I was good at. It was challenging, Mm -hmm. and yet 
being able to work with children, um, especially those from um, challenged neighborhoods, right. economically yeah. challenged neighborhoods, um, that felt like uh, it felt really important yeah. to me at that time to be able to bring that kind of, of service into into a community. And I loved it. I loved the kids. They made me laugh. They infuriated mm-hmm. yeah, me. <laughs> and we also had a, a, a lot of fun together. I was very diligent and responsible in terms of making sure I was prepared and doing the best job that I could do. Yeah. I think it was something that was maybe I was called to do. Uh, and I think where I see sort of a higher power in all of this is that when I worked in the fourth ward, I had phenomenal mentor Uh teachers who shared with me, who helped me. uh, And that's where I did my student teaching, but I had to put together this big portfolio Mm -hmm. and teach lessons and do Mm -hmm. a video of myself teaching and all of those kinds of things. But without them and, you know, both of my parents died. Um, fairly in the in the early 90s um and so i almost quit but i had really really good people saying no you need to keep going what was going on that you felt like you needed to quit well my both of my parents died within a year of each other uh-huh. and i was just so overwhelmed with that that i didn't think i could continue mm-hmm. my studies that mm-hmm. that semester uh, but a really, really wonderful teacher talked me out of it. She said, no, I think it's better if you're here. So she was one of those godsends to you at that time. Yeah. Did you recognize that at the time for what it turned out to be? I mean, was your program of the type that somewhere along the way you looked back and said that was a God deal that happened? Yeah, I think I think at that point, I just remember the moment. The moment was so vivid because I was convinced that I needed to quit. Uh-huh. And she was so clear in her, no, I don't think that's right for you, that I think that I was sober enough at that time that I was able to take it in and hear it because it resonated somewhere deep inside. How long were you teaching? How long did you do that for? I taught for a total of 15 years. So within that time frame, I became very interested Uh in writing and in teaching Mm -hmm. creative writing. So I studied at Columbia University Mm -hmm. over several summers, uh, went with other teachers uh, that I knew. Mm -hmm. Barry would come, you know, on the weekend in between, and we'd see the sights of New York City. Nothing like it, right? Uh, And so... But that really got me uh, involved with having a great passion for good children's literature and for teaching kids how to write in ways that are authentic and not driven by state testing or prompts, if you will. So, and then I started writing myself. Um, and I had, that's always been uh, a tool I've used not only in recovery, but also in my work and in my job. Well, that's extraordinary. Probably within around the early 2000s to 2003, I started focusing more on that. I see. Uh-huh. And then I joined a small group of women 
what I liked about it is that I could go from school to school and only teach writing. I get it. Uh-huh. Uh, I did that for uh, a number of years. Then I went back to the classroom hmm. and uh, lasted about three years, and I was just exhausted. And so I quit without having any other plan in mind. When you when you did that, when you quit without having anything else waiting for you or or anything to step into immediately... Um, how important was your program to you at that point? Oh, it was absolutely huge. It was the stay sober no matter what. And there was just that sense that this was the next right thing for for me to do. Now, it, it didn't mean that I had sure. any easy uh-huh. solutions at that point because I didn't. Uh, yeah. I quit without having a plan, which was not my my usual thing to do but Barry had a really good job at the time mm-hmm. and so and he was fully supportive as he always has been mm-hmm. and so I took a chance on applying to mm-hmm. a literary nonprofit and wondered if they mm-hmm. might hire me based on my experience not only as a mm-hmm. teacher but as a teacher wow. of writing and they did <laughs> so then uh i started a, a business of my own and i w- did tutoring and uh worked for this nonprofit and still saw kids in classes and i held adult writing groups and sort of developed my own business around creative writing sounds like that was a very very busy time it was. How did that impact your, your sobriety and your program? I'm always curious as to a lot of times people get so busy in uh, their jobs or other things that their program kind of moves down the priority list a little bit. Did you ever find that happening? Or in the midst of what was going on, how, how connected were you to your program? I don't know that I was as connected as uh-huh, I probably sure. could have been especially in in starting a a, a business. I still went to meetings, not, you know, as many as Mm -hmm. I did uh, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I sponsored people, you know, every now and again, tried to make myself as Mm -hmm. available as as I could be. Uh, And I'm grateful for those years because I learned more, I think, in sobriety about who I am and what's important to me. Mm. However... I ended up having the opportunity to step into an administrative role with this nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. while I have no regrets yeah. about all of that, I didn't have the time or the energy to devote as much time as I probably needed to my recovery. I got a little too swept up in uh, the intensity of that work and the amount of uh-huh. overtime required. But it is not unusual for nonprofits to uh, expect a lot weekends, evenings. So all that was to the detriment of your program at that time. Were there other things that were going on that made you think that you didn't need as many meetings? or? Oh, absolutely. Mostly it was exhaustion. Right. And it's like, well, I just, I uh-huh. can't manage both of these. So what's going to go a little bit by... Okay the wayside, which really was not a a great idea. I wouldn't say that I was crazy, but I didn't feel connected. And then I began to make more of a concerted effort to return to meetings and began going much more regularly. So did you you catch yourself up on that? Or or were you getting feedback from your women friends in the program or a sponsor or even from Barry? Or was that something you kind of came to on your own? 
I think I pretty much kind of came to it on my own, but it it wasn't uh-huh. that okay. I didn't talk about it. You know, people right. like Jane, you know, were instrumental in helping me. Other women from a Friday night meeting mm-hmm. that I used to go to, certainly Barry. But I recognized that I needed to talk to other sober people uh-huh. Uh-huh. rather than talking to those who were uh, in my work situation who were still actively in their own stuff. So you you found a way at that time to re-engage your program. I did. And um, how long did it take you to kind of fully get back to the point at which you felt in the middle again? I don't know. I think it. it I started it and just became yeah. much more consistent uh-huh. with going to meetings yeah. and trying to talk to people. So I would say that maybe over the course of three years or so, yeah. You know, I became, I felt like I was on more solid ground. Uh, certainly, there was a point um, when I was working on my own where I absolutely right. felt mm-hmm. like I was thriving. I was enjoying my work. I was satisfied. Mm-hmm. I was happy. I felt balanced. It was when I started to work for someone else yeah. that I kind of began to get away from, from what was needed in favor of what the organization wanted. But I didn't stop going to meetings. I did not. That's good because in, in my experience, it's so incredibly easy to not go to a meeting. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you, you kind of caught yourself in that. So in the past couple of years, and we've, we've faced some real challenges in the last year, I know you have. Uh, mm. What has your program meant to you during this period of time? I can tell you that, as as we all do, we go through a variety mm-hmm. of different kinds of challenges and things with loved ones, but I will tell you that this year has been one mm-hmm. of the most challenging I've had in sobriety. I think that I definitely mm-hmm. gave too much to my job. I was oh, treated good. really, really badly. Um and it, uh, yeah, but I haven't yeah. drunk over it, and I'm not going to, right? Uh, it does mean, though, which is something that, you know, we get to practice over many, many years. I still mm-hmm. had to walk through that pain, that hurt, yeah. uh, as a sober person, right? and uh, have done that. I can tell you that one of the biggest benefits is I feel... Um, I feel like this is the beginning of a new part of my life in sobriety. Mm-hmm. I go to a meeting every day, uh, and sometimes two, with the possible exception of Sundays. Um, but I, I have mm-hmm. gained so much in just recommitting to mm-hmm. uh, who I fundamentally am, and connecting mm-hmm. with people that I feel are really real mm-hmm. and continue to speak my language. And it has been instrumental in helping yeah. me yeah. Um, just walk through it. There's something about being around other alcoholics yeah. where yeah. it's like, oh, my God, yeah. I'm not alone. <laughs> you know, other people are, are trying to face life on life's yeah. terms, regardless of what that thing is. We're all we're all in it yeah. together is how it feels. A- absolutely. Did you feel a, a kind of a spiritual boost from that? It's been huge. Mm. I cannot 
even tell you. It has taken a number of months to sort of get past the initial shock and the, and, you know, there's still some hurt and some, you know, grieving going on around that, but I'm not, uh, it's the program that's that's helped me stay out of resentment. And that, that has made all the difference. And it has also pushed me to, uh, connect and really be aware of the importance of a higher power, whatever it is one calls that. But I have needed to surrender over and over and over again. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Is right. It's about surrender and then maintaining your course of humility. That's right. Yeah, I get and that. And staying on course. So, yeah, so I, I get that. Uh, so finally, let me ask you this, since we're, since we're on Zoom all the time, you and I are both, we go to a lot, you know, some of the same meetings. If you were able to catch one of those people with very limited sobriety who may have never been to a live AA meeting and you were able to talk directly to them knowing that they're trying to get sober in the midst of this, what would you tell them? How would you encourage them about AA? Someone who's only seen it in Zoom and uh, do you feel like you'd be talking to them any differently than you would if you had them in person? You know, I don't think so. I think Zoom has, uh, I have been to some meetings that just haven't worked very well on Zoom. They're better in person. But the Mm -hmm. meetings that I currently go to absolutely work on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were a brand new person, I, I could see that as being somewhat difficult. Uh, and yet what I love, especially about the meetings in the UK, is how newcomer-centered they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a guy in one of our meetings who admitted to having a slip. And I thought to myself, what would I want to say to him? I would want to tell him, I am so glad that you're back and that you've shared how, what happened and that and that you're here and we're all yeah. here to support you as you continue your sober journey you know there's no judgment right sure and that takes a lot of courage and it's a powerful demonstration not only to new people but to people like you and I who've got long periods of sobriety it becomes a, a brand new reason to be grateful on that particular day absolutely it does well you know i've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you oh. Oh, thank you, Howard. Me too. You know, and, and in person makes me feel like I don't want to let any more time go by once we're back in in the rooms where you and I and uh, my wife and, and Barry, we all get together. And Sure. I want to tell you too, Howard, that Barry just really enjoys spending time with you and, and it makes him happy. And so it makes me happy too. He's a good man. He's a really, really beautiful soul. Right. And, and I, love, I love spending time and chatting with him and talking with him about different things. Well, he feels the same way, Howard. Well, as I have with you today, I want to just say, I want to just say that I love you and I'm, I appreciate your being on the show today to share your experience, strength, and hope with everybody out there. Happy, happy to do it. You ask great questions too, Howard. So well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to, to spend time with you today. Thank you for doing this, Marianne. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. I'm thankful you tuned in. 
If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsors, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show. And there's a nifty YouTube video that shows how to listen to a podcast. If you want to email me, it's howard at recoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.